0: following audio is for Emanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emanuel is available at our website www.myemanuel.net. Sermon is just that. It's an apologetical sermon to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. He is the new covenant. He's the way to heaven and that you and I should Turn to him now uh, in that understand that the writer of Hebrews is primarily at the time that he writes this book he's writing to Hebrews so he's writing Jewish content he's he's writing about the Old Testament he's writing things that Jews and Hebrews would understand but he's really writing about faith and now because we have the Old Testament because Jesus has come and fulfilled by his death and burial and resurrection the new covenant because we have the Holy Spirit inspiring this writer and preserving uh, for us a copy of Hebrews. We have this powerful, powerful statement. Let's do the work together. It's going to feel a little bit like a college classroom. There's a lot of work to do in it. I'm going to talk as fast as you can listen. Here's Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard because we don't want to drift away from it. For since the message, now he's talking about the Old Covenant message, the Old Testament. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and since every transgression and or disobedience receives a just retribution, he's going to ask a rhetorical question now, How could we escape? Literally, how can we escape judgment? How can we escape hell? How can we escape eternal death if we neglect this incredibly great salvation that God has provided for us through Jesus Christ? This salvation, this new covenant, this new testament was first declared by the Lord. Second, it was attested to us by those who who heard him and listened to him and saw him, eyewitnesses. Verse 4 Third, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And fourthly, it's attested to by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's an incredible four verses. He covers the entire Bible in four verses. Here's the first thing he says to us. The Old Covenant clearly has divine origin. It's from God. It's declared by angels. It's completely reliable. Um, there are four or five sermons here. One is how the Old Testament came, how it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, how each author got it over a course of, well, not just the Old Testament, into the New Testament, 40 different authors over a course of 15 years that, that is one perfect document. It's incredible what it is. The Old Testament has been proven historically reliable. It's been proven geographically reliable. It's been proven archaeologically reliable. And those who tried to tear it apart and dissect it and criticize it, notable names like Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, Lou Wallace, became Christians when they tried to poke holes in it because they recognize it's a completely reliable document from God himself. This Old Testament document that's reliable, that you can bank on, teaches us something. It taught, us, t- taught them something when they lived in the Old Testament era. It still teaches us something today. It teaches us the holiness of God. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you read that they've got to bring a lamb, they've got to bring a bull, they've got to bring a goat, they've got to bring a blood sacrifice. Whenever you read, you have to do it exactly this way, and you can do it no other way. It's reminding us that God's holy. He's perfect. He's just. He's righteous. Never any, any part of unholiness in Him. Whenever there's an unholy part in our lives... It cannot stand up to. It can't be in the presence with the holiness of God. Isaiah the prophet, when he, sees the, when he sees the vision in Isaiah 6, and he sees the angel saying, holy, 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 and he's there, and he realizes he's not holy. He says, oh, 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 woe is me, I am undone. It's beautiful Shakespearean language, isn't it? It means, uh-oh, my goose is cooked. In the Old Testament, we read about the holiness of God. When, when uh, Moses saw Mount Sinai, he's getting the Ten Commandments, God says to the children of Israel, don't come close to the mountain. Don't let your animals come close to the mountain. If they do, they will die. It's the holiness of God. Priests that are uh, mixing the incense, they, the, the, the incense isn't right. It's not the way God prescribed it. And they go, that's okay. God kills them. It's the holiness of God. If you don't bring a blood sacrifice, then you're not in right relationship with God. You're outside of that. There's all of this about being cleansed and being sanctified. In fact, in this passage, it says every transgression, every sin, whether it's a thought sin, a sin of the mouth, the word, the tongue, an action sin, every sin, every disobedience receives a just retribution. We don't like to talk about that. In fact, in our modern American society, the idea is, well, I know I'm not perfect, but well, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I, I don't go to church every week, and I don't tithe. Nobody actually really tithes, right, and that hour of prayer thing. I mean, that's fanatical, but I'm a pretty good guy. I, I'm probably going to make it. The idea is that I'm better than you, so since I'm better than you, I'm probably going to get in. And we think that when we get to Heaven's Gate, God with kind of a wink and a nod, like a bouncer letting an underage drinker in a bar, is going to let you in. And there's nothing in the Bible that even comes close to hinting at that. What the Bible says is, nobody's getting in. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks God. There's none that goes for His holiness. Every one of us have have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. This is the teaching of the old covenant. What's incredible is that that holy, perfect, righteous God is also a loving, merciful, and graceful God. And so he sends us Jesus. Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is our salvation. In fact, in this we begin to see that getting to heaven isn't a formula. Even in the Old Testament, the the whole formula, if you would call it that, is just to expose my sinful heart. But... In the New Testament, we think in terms of formula, too. If I, if I go to church enough, if I put something in the offering plate, if I'm good to my neighbor, if I help little old ladies across the street, I'll probably get in. That's, that's not the way it works. Jesus is the way. This is what Jesus would say over and over again when it says in verse 3, this new covenant was first declared by the Lord. Jesus came, and he said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The disciples said, Show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said, Have you been with me this long and you don't know me? Jesus said, Everyone who seeks God hears the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I and the Father are one. Whatever the Father tells me to say, that's what I say. Whatever the Father tells me to do, that's what I do. Can't you see it? I come from God. He taught it and he taught it and he taught it and he taught it. The, the idea that people read the the Gospels, and go, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. I, I don't even know what they're reading. He does it on every single occasion. It's not just his teaching. It was also attested to by the signs and the wonders and the miracles that God the Father did through Jesus. Jesus fed 5,000 with uh, loaves and fishes. He fed 4,000 later on again. He walked on water. He calmed the, the storm. Jesus made the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And the sick were healed. He raised the dead back to life. He did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It's an incredible, uh, just a litany of all of the miracles that Jesus did. And so, it was attested to by God the Father through the miracles that he did through the Son. And then, when we get to the end of verse 4, the writer of Hebrews, now looking back at recent history, because he's writing this about maybe 65, 70 A.D., no, it's probably 65 because the temple's destroyed in 70, and that hasn't happened yet. So he's right in there. So he's, he's 32 years after the crucifixion. He's looking back at that recent history, that 32 years, and he's saying, not only did Jesus come, and he was the Son of God, and it was attested to by the Father, and not only were all the miracles there, but then he said, but look what the Holy Spirit has done in the giving of gifts to mankind after the ascension of Jesus. And he makes that reference in the end. And, and when you think about it, it really is incredible. Let's just think about one guy. Just think about Peter. What's Peter like before the resurrection? He's stick my other foot in my mouth, Peter. He's deny the Lord, Peter. He's the only disciple that Jesus ever had to say, get behind me, Satan, Peter. That's who he is. He's, uh, I'm going to go back to fishing, and Jesus has to go find him in John 21, Peter. But in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection and the falling of the Holy Spirit, he preaches 53 days after the crucifixion. The people who murdered Jesus are in the crowd, and Peter stands up, no longer denial Peter, no longer making mistakes Peter. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, it says in Acts chapter 2, preached in that place, and 3,000 people are saved. That's not the only work of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We see the gifts of the Holy Spirit in all kinds of other ways. Barnabas comes, sells all that he has, lays the money at the apostles' feet, and says, I want to be a missionary the rest of my life. That happens right there in their presence. The Holy Spirit is so powerfully. Uh, active in their presence that when Ananias and Sapphira see all the attention that Barnabas got, they fake it. They sell some property. They bring half of the money and say, this is all the money that we sold the property for. We're going to give all our money to the Lord. And the, and the Lord knows that they're lying. So in the worship service that day, he strikes them dead. How would that go for worship? Be just a perfect time to give an altar call, wouldn't it? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not, just, it's not just guys like Peter and James and John. There's a guy that's never mentioned before in all of the Bible until we get to Acts. His name is Stephen. Stephen's a Greek name, so probably his mom's a Jew, his dad's a Greek. Stephen, Stephen preaches. We know that Stephen was a Baptist. He preaches the longest recorded uh, sermon in all the Bible. He preaches a sermon that's so powerful, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, he's, that the only thing you can do is either give your life to Christ, pick up a rock, and... Hit him in the head with it. And they choose to stone him to death. He's the first martyr of the New Testament era. Over and over and over again, we see the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The writer says, this all goes together. From Old Covenant, where God says, I am holy. Be a holy people. And we realize, I can't be holy. I sin, and I sin, and I sin. I sin by word. I sin by action. I sin by thought. And he goes, I know. So I'm going to send you Jesus. And Jesus is going to pay for every single sin. Think about it just a moment. It's good stuff. The, the, the verse says here that every transgression, every disobedience receives a just retribution. You see, a holy God had to be satisfied. So you know where all that retribution went for your sin and my sin? It was all laid on Jesus who became the perfect sacrifice. That's what the writer's talking about. So you see, God's love jesus's sacrifice demand a response for us and so the writer says in verse three how will we escape judgment there's nowhere else to go there's no other way to overcome your sin there's no other way to get to the the a presence into the holy god there's nobody else that can do for us what jesus did how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation And then he goes on in chapter 3. I'm going to move to chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 now. He goes to chapter 3, and he gives us an illustration of a whole generation of people who did turn their back on this great salvation. Now, he's writing it to Hebrews. Uh, So whenever you read Hebrew and Jew, they sometimes are used interchangeably. Hebrew is the ethnicity. Jew is the religion. Okay? So, So he's writing to Hebrews. He's writing to these of the lineage of Abraham, and he wants to make his point. So he's going to get an illustration that every Jew, every Hebrew will understand. What is the most renowned, infamous generation that ever turned their back on God's wonderful work in his salvation? And the answer is, it's those that hardened their hearts against the Lord that came out of Egypt under Moses. Here's what he says. I'm in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, and he's quoting from the 95th Psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's talking about the day of testing in the wilderness. He uses the word day there as a whole period of time. It's actually a 40-year period of time. He says, verse 9, that was when your fathers put me to the test. They saw my works. They saw my miracles for 40 years, but they didn't respond. Verse 10, so therefore I was provoked with that generation. And I said to them, they always go astray, astray uh, in their hearts. They've not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. The writer of Hebrews now comes back in verse 12 and he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. Because of Christ, we we share in the, the fact that we're children of God. We share in heaven as our eternal home. We share in the Holy Spirit. We share in this unity of love that we have in the cross. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end verse 15 he quotes it again as it said today if you hear his voice don't harden your hearts so what is he going to do he's going to say okay if you neglect this great salvation what what happens to you what does it look like what's a perfect illustration and so he goes back and he, he gets these people who were in Egypt and they saw God at work for 40 years Think of everything that they saw. Let's just rehearse this just for a second. You're in Egypt. You're in slavery. You pray for a deliverer. And God doesn't send you any old deliverer. He sends you the perfect man. He sends you Moses. Moses is a Jew. Moses has a passion to lead his people out of slavery. But Moses is the only Jew. He's the only Israelite that can walk in to the palace of the Pharaoh. That's where he grew up. He grew up in the palace. He's a guy who can walk in there to Pharaoh. Nobody else can, but he can. God sends them Moses, who's been gone for 40 years. Moses has a brother, Aaron. He sends Aaron with Moses, who's going to become the head of the whole Levitical priesthood. They are perfect for this job. What does God do through Moses? Well, he starts to break the back of Egypt's own idolatry and of their own spiritual stubbornness represented in pharaoh and so the nile turns to blood and and these aren't in order there's there's gnats and frogs and hail and grasshoppers and it's it's one plague after another and egypt bows its back and grits its teeth and says no we won't worship your god we won't let you go and so the last plague is the passover the death angel comes and none of these plagues happen in Goshen where the Israelites are. They all happen to the Egyptians. The, the tenth plague, the Jews put the blood on the doorpost. The death angel passes over them. But in that night, firstborn male in every household in all of Egypt dies. It's so bad that the Egyptians take all their gold, all their silver, all their wealth, their precious jewels, and they give it to the Jews and say, take this and leave. If you'll just take this and leave, then everything will be better here. It's as if the Israelites came militarily, conquered Egypt, and plundered them. That's what really happens there. And when they walk out of Egypt, Egypt would never again be the great civilization that it was. They would be broken. God's not done yet, though. He leads them to the Red Sea, And then they get trapped by Pharaoh's army one last time. God opens the sea. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. Water on both sides of them. They get to the other side, turn around, and see the the military strength of Egypt demolished in two waves. They get in the desert. They don't have water. God provides water. They don't have food. He provides manna. They don't have this. They don't have that. He gives them everything that they need. Did you know the Bible says the 40 years they were in the wilderness, not one person had a sandal that blew out or broke? Did you know that for 40 years, God made sure that their sandals didn't wear out, that their clothes didn't wear out? He took care of their every need. And despite all of that, what we read in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what's recited in psalm 95 what's recited in hebrews chapter 3 is they saw my works for 40 years and they didn't care they turned their back on god you see this generation proves to us that our problem is a heart problem it proves to us that our problem is a sin problem this generation didn't need more education they didn't need more information. If anybody had ever seen God move firsthand, that generation had. generation di- it, wasn't a, it was no longer a wealth problem or an impoverished problem. Egypt, Egypt gave them all their wealth. They were rich enough they could, make a, they could make a golden calf out of pure gold to bow down as an idol. That, they, had, they had plenty of wealth and money. So the problems of life are what? Are the problems of life really our economics? Are they really our educational system? Is it really our government? The problem of life is that Jeremiah describes our hearts and he says, it's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? That's the problem. And this generation proves it. And so God says, I'm in verse 11, I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. Now, uh, the writer of Hebrews now means that to be two things. They didn't enter into the promised land. That was the physical earthly rest. But he also here is talking about salvation, and he says they didn't enter heaven. They didn't enter the spiritual rest. Now, there was a couple exceptions, Joshua, Caleb, but that generation, they didn't believe. Think of everything they saw. Think of everything they experienced. Think of everything that God did for them, and they didn't believe and they didn't get to heaven. They didn't enter their rest. The question for us is, what is it that keeps us from becoming like them? I mean, he, he, he says back in chapter 2, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. It's the, Take care, brothers, is a, it's a, that's a nice, sweet interpretation. I would say, watch out! don't be like them. Don't follow that path. Don't do that. It is is a certain destructive end. So when he speaks to us and he says don't be like them, he says in verse 13, encourage one another, exhort one another, admonish one another every day as long as it's called today. And in that we find the secret for salvation. You see? The thing that keeps you and I from becoming like them is that we turn away from our sin today. We choose to receive Jesus today. Here, let's do it very quickly. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice. What I just read in verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Look at verse 15. He says, as it said, today if you hear his voice. Skip down to chapter 4. Find verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward. The words I've already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, five times. Five times he's saying to you, today, 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 today. Do you know why? Because the deceitfulness of sin hardens your hearts. He used that generation to prove it. The deceitfulness of sin hardens your heart. The Holy Spirit speaks to you today. The Holy Spirit says to you today, I sent my son to die for you. I sent my son to pay for your sins. Turn from your sins. Set aside your selfishness. Put away your idolatry. Turn to me today. And we say, Ah, I believe there's a God. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for me. But I I have some of these things that I like doing. So I, I think I'll wait till tomorrow. The problem is that when you wait till tomorrow, you're... Your heart's been hardened one more day by sin. And you and I know, both know that sometimes tomorrow becomes next week and next week becomes next month. Next month becomes next year. I even know some people who I think are actually purposely waiting for the end of their life. I want to live all my life and do all the things that I want, and then right before I die, I'll give my life to Jesus then. It doesn't ever work out that way. Do you know why? Because each passing day, the heart grows harder and harder so that when God comes to you and he says the same thing he's saying to you today but when he says it two years from now five years from now ten years and he says I sent my son to die for you you're just like meh you walk through the Red Sea so what? you got manna every day meh and so what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? he's saying to you give me your life today before it's too late I want to ask for every head to, to be bowed and every eye to be closed maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those people that I just described and you've been waiting and putting it off thinking you'll do it later and now the Holy Spirit comes to you one more time in God's love in His grace in His mercy and He says give me your life today won't you do that today isn't it time? Now is the time. Today's the appointed day of salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer. You've already given your life to the Lord. But you discovered in your, your prayer time, as you join this church in a 14 day prayer challenge, God has begun to speak to you. It, it's exciting, isn't it, to hear God speak to you. You've turned off the radio and turned off the TV, and you're hearing the voice of God. But when God speaks to you, what is he saying? He's, he's saying to you, I want you to do this today. I want you to start this today. I, I want you to stop this today. And Are you putting it off till tomorrow? Are you hardening your heart? Believer, isn't it time that you do it today? So we want to take a few moments right here. We've, we've taken various times during this worship service. We've, we've prayed our adoration and our praise and our worship, and we've prayed our, our confessions of our sin and our thanksgiving, and our, we've brought our requests, our supplications to the Lord. But now is it a time to say to whatever the Lord is saying to you, yes, yes, I'll do what you've asked me to do. Father, Here every heart, hear every prayer, receive them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, make us who are unrighteous, righteous by your sacrifice of your Son on the cross, and send your Holy Spirit to confirm in our hearts the lives that we should live, destroy our hard hearts, make them soft and pliable again, and change us and remake us and remold us into the image of your Son. This we pray that you would do in the most wonderful, the most precious, the most holy name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. One last word for you. Some of you are struggling. Uh, you made a commitment to pray an hour a day and it's been hard for you. You 15 minutes, even 15 minute chucks has been hard. Your your mind's a little distracted. So here's one tool that many people use that we've provided for you in your bulletin and that is just a place from a prayer list. What happens is we start to pray and then we remember all the things that we need to get when we go to the grocery store. So you've you got, you got a grocery list that you're doing over here and then you remember, oh yeah, I need to mow the yard and I've got to pick up some Roundup. Now my weeds are growing and my neighbors are saying bad things. And then you realize you've, you for, you've lost your train of thought for prayer. So if you make a prayer list it keeps your mind right there on tack, and and you could start this prayer list by putting the Smiths and the Kirschmans and the Carnathans, Carnathans. Uh, Karn, Karn, I didn't want to say Corinthians, <laughs> and uh, that could begin your prayer list right there. On the back is an old hymn. It's it's a beautiful way to prepare your heart for a time of prayer, and I want to make this our benediction this morning. Breathe on me, Holy Spirit. Breathe on me until my heart is clean. Let sunshine fill the inmost part with not a cloud between. Holy Spirit, breathe on me, my stubborn will subdue. Teach me in words of living flame what Christ would have me do. Holy Spirit, breathe on me, fill me with power divine. Kindle a flame of love and zeal. Within this heart of mine, Holy Spirit, breathe on me till I am all thine own, until my will is lost in thine, to live for thee alone. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemanuel.net.